Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 41 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes, mature language and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. The enviable life of a socialite and her rich husband was not all that it appeared to be. Scratch the impeccable surface of the Bakeland family and you would find violence, abuse and betrayal. It was a cold afternoon in mid-November 1972 when the call came in. My mother has fallen on a knife and it has gone into her side. The man on the other end of the line told the operator. The caller spoke calmly as he made a perplexing comment, adding that his mother had been dead for six years. Emergency responders rushed to the scene at Cadogan Square in London. After running up flights of stairs towards the penthouse duplex apartment, they noticed an illuminated portrait of a young boy taking pride of place on the wall. As they made their way to the kitchen, the paramedics saw a middle-aged woman sprawled on the floor. She was fully clothed, and her feet extended towards the hallway. Clearly, she had neither fallen on a knife as the caller had suggested, nor was there a wound to her side. The shirt she was wearing was pierced around the chest. She had a puncture wound to her heart, as well as a puncture wound to the neck. There was no prospect of reviving her. Sadly, the female passed away. Once the victim was pronounced dead at the scene, the paramedics left the home while waiting for police to arrive. As they made the call to get assistance, the first responders asked a female tenant of the building to speak with the male caller who reported the death. 
His name was Anthony Bakeland. Anthony told the tenant that his grandmother had killed his mother. Detective Superintendent Kenneth Brett was one of the first to arrive at Cadogan Square in Knightsbridge, an affluent area of England's capital. He was told that a maid had run from the home after a fight broke out between two of the tenants, 50-year-old Barbara Bakeland and her 26-year-old son. The maid informed the officer that Anthony, or Tony as he was affectionately known, had pulled his mother's hair then threw her violently to the floor. The maid saw that Anthony Bakeland had his foot on his mother's chest holding her down. They began to kick her and scream either in English or French. According to the maid, she became so afraid that she fled. During the attack, it appeared as though Barbara had attempted to run, but was unsuccessful in the attempt. What appeared to be the murder weapon had been left at the scene. A blood-stained kitchen knife was perched on the draining board. On the second floor of the home, Anthony Bakeland was in his bedroom. He was on the phone when a detective entered the room. The officer quickly realised the main suspect, the victim's son, was not informing loved ones of his mother's untimely death. Instead, he was ordering Chinese food. We are police officers. What are you doing? Detective Inspector William McPherson Carney inquired. I'm just getting some food, Anthony Bakeland replied. Officers were immediately struck by how seemingly cavalier Anthony was given the situation that had unfolded downstairs. He knew his mother had been killed and was bleeding to death in the kitchen, yet he was in the bedroom quietly requesting his dinner. Anthony Bakeland was asked what had happened to his mother. His reply echoed what he said on the phone to the emergency services. She slipped on the knife. Detective Sergeant Nickel asked if Anthony Bakeland had witnessed his mother's alleged accident with the knife. He replied, No, I was in mother's room. She must have slipped. I heard a thud. Then I heard a gasp. It seemed for hours and hours. Anthony was asked if he removed the knife, as when his mother's body was found, the blade was discovered near the sink. He said he did not, and added he had no idea how it had got there. The Bakeland family often attracted sideways glances from the people who encountered them. Anthony's father, Brooks, was the grandson of Leo Bakeland, known as the father of plastic. This was following his creation of moldable plastic, made from synthetic components in the early 1900s that he named Bakelite. Leo Bakeland was originally from Belgium and had come to Yonkers in New York where he developed Bakelite plastic. It was created from a polymerization of phenyl alcohol and formaldehyde. The initial product was either a thick liquid or in a solid but brittle form. Each would change under subtle temperatures into the final substance, which was strong, hard and resilient. Bakelite plastics were a success and found numerous applications, from toilet seats, streamlined radios, art deco jewellery, lamps and even used in the first atomic bomb. It was dubbed the material of a thousand uses. The business was eventually sold to the Union Carbide Corporation, and its success afforded the Bakeland family the kind of lifestyle that most can only dream of. Brooks Bakeland had not inherited money from his father, but he was given more than enough from his grandparents, a sum he called fuck you money. 
He was later quoted in the book Savage Grace, the true story of fatal relations in a rich and famous American family by Natalie Robbins and Stephen M. L. Aronson, as saying, I was always successful in everything I have wished to do. Brooks was quite the adventurer, and he had pioneered an uncharted section of the Peruvian jungle. He rubbed shoulders with artists and creatives like Salvador Dali, Marcel Duchamp, and Cecil Garbeau. Brooks had once been a brilliant student, studying mathematics and physics, still around a week before he obtained his PhD at Columbia he decided instead to embark on a new adventure, writing. When he quit Columbia, his family were irked and even reduced his monthly support payments. But it did not matter. Brooks could always rely on his grandmother. Brooks Bakeland met Barbara Daly when she was trying to catch a break in Hollywood after modelling in New York. Barbara was born in West Roxbury, Massachusetts, and had big ambitions to one day become a Hollywood star and to mingle with the glamorous and the wealthy. As a young socialite, her looks attracted many suitors, including John Jacob Astor, the son of one of the wealthiest passengers on the Titanic. According to Barbara, she had turned down an offer Asta had made asking that if she waited for him while he was getting a divorce from socialite Ellen Tucky French, he would pay her $3 million. Meeting Brooks Bakeland allowed Barbara to live the lifestyle she had always dreamed of. In 1942, just six weeks after meeting, Barbara and Brooks were married. Barbara took to high society like a duck to water. She would throw lavish parties in the family home, always the perfect hostess to her rich and famous guests. She wore expensive clothing from the most lavish brands. Their home was decorated with bespoke items designed specifically for the family. She had a taste for Chanel and ornate handmade pieces. Brooks Bakeland drove a Mercedes sports car. They drank bourbon that was made at distilleries to the Bakeland's taste. On August 28, 1946, Barbara gave birth to a baby boy, Anthony Bakeland. It was believed that he was the apple of his mother's eye. Young Anthony looked more like his mother than his father. His face was in perfect proportion, and his hair mimicked the same red shade as Barbara's. Anthony Bakeland, an intelligent child, grew up in financial privilege, and he knew it. He was thought of as precocious. As a family friend Francine Duplessis Gray said, he was ideally beautiful, you know, glistening and angelic and with beautiful manners and a sweet smile. In fact, Francine remarked that she and her husband Cleve always used to say how they would feel lucky if they had a child that looked like Anthony Bakeland. Just like his mother, his looks became a prized asset in high society. Anthony attended prestigious boarding schools, and when he went home he was treated like the entertainment at his parents' gatherings. Anthony impressed Barbara and Brooke's friends. Seemingly wise beyond his years, he recited literature, and it was believed he was destined to be a prodigy. The Bakelands divided their time among numerous exclusive locations, in the Hamptons, Paris and Tuscany. Living a nomadic lifestyle, the family never stayed in one place for too long. Most summer days were spent on a yacht drinking wine or in the company of friends. As Anthony later said, I was taken by my parents to all their friends' houses. 
so I really grew up in my parents' generation than in my own. While the Bakelands came across as a glamorous family to be envied, their dynamic was more unnatural. A closer look would reveal that appearances can be deceiving. Life in the Bakeland home was chaotic and often centred around Barbara's pursuit of social status. She entangled herself in the lives of other socialites and those people she deemed worthy of her company. As a child, her son was mostly left to his own devices and Anthony Bakeland would spend his time alone in his bedroom. He was talented especially at composing poetry or painting. Still, Anthony struggled academically and was expelled from various private schools due to bad grades. By the time Anthony Bakeland was a teenager, there were signs that something had shifted in the young man. His drawings in art class were becoming increasingly graphic. Sketches of humans with blood dripping from their bodies and even paintings of his own mother decapitated, with snakes wrapped tightly around her neck. Barbara Bakeland was also troubled. She attempted to take her life on at least four occasions by overdosing on aspirin. Depression and suicidal ideation flowed through generations of Barbara's family. Her father and her brother both took their own lives. Despite the fact that outsiders believed that Brooks and Barbara Bakeland were the ideal couple, the marriage did not last. When their son was 22 years old, his parents separated. Brooks had met another woman through unconventional means. When Anthony Bakeland was 21 years old, he brought home a woman to meet his parents. Sylvie was six years Anthony's senior. It was the first and last woman he ever brought home. She ended up in a relationship with his father. Brooks, it is said, was so enamoured with the young woman, he disregarded the feelings of his wife and son. Barbara was devastated. A fourth suicide attempt would come when her husband and father to her child left for good. The marriage between Barbara and Brooks had been dysfunctional. While they appeared to have loved one another, they also despised one another in equal measure. They battled for dominance over their only child, which in turn tore him to shreds emotionally. Barbara's love for her son became obsessive. As a family friend Sam Green said, Barbara just thought Tony was the Messiah and the greatest child that ever was. Nobody was ever good enough for Tony. From a young age, Anthony Bakeland knew he was gay. According to his psychiatrist Dr. Thomas McGuire, Anthony's first, quote, homosexual relationship was when he was eight years old. By 14, Anthony was open about who he loved, but his mother Barbara did not respond well to the news. In fact, she responded in a way that was nothing short of horrific. The book Savage Grace details how instead of supporting her son, Barbara Bakeland decided to try and, quote, save her son from his homosexuality. She groomed Anthony and sexually abused him when her earlier attempts to hire women to convert him had failed. It is not clear how often the sexual assaults occurred, but Barbara made no secret of them, constantly telling friends about her campaign to rid her son of his so-called sins. Her abuse was picked up on by Anthony's father Brooks, 
and Barbara had even told him that she could cure their son of his homosexuality by taking him to bed. By this point, an aloof Brooks had decided he wanted nothing more to do with his former wife and their son. In the lead-up to Barbara's death, friends and family members who spent time with both her and Anthony said the mother and son's relationship was tumultuous. They often had fiery arguments, triggered by the most mundane of things, such as whether somebody was a good poet or not. Before the killing, in 1971, Anthony Bakeland had spent time in the acute psychiatric ward of the Metropolitan Hospital in New York, where he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. As per his record from the patient abstract system, he felt fearful, delusional, and complained about hallucinations. It noted his prior use of illicit substances. He began experimenting with drugs when he was 18 years old. This included marijuana, LSD and amphetamines. A psychiatric report from March 1971 read in part, Patient's family a strange and difficult one. Patient's father a rigid moody person who is always right about any subject that comes up cutting and critical in his relationship to everyone and more particularly to patient. He eventually separated from his wife, patient's mother, and established a relationship with the girlfriend of patient, with whom he is now living. Patient's mother is a very beautiful, talented woman, extremely seductive in her relationships with men and with patient. She finds reasons to have him live with her, and alternates between extreme seductiveness and a strange sort of provocativeness, which drives patient to distraction. She speaks of suicide frequently to patient. Patient shows clear-cut indications of a thought disorder, has had delusions, some paranoid ideation. Although the entire picture is modified by drug use, particularly marijuana, the essential diagnosis is paranoid schizophrenia. Psychiatric hospitalisation and psychotherapy recommended. There had been attempts for Anthony Bakeland to be sent to a private psychiatric hospital, but Brooks had refused to pay for his son's care. Anthony had been admitted to Metropolitan Hospital after he randomly attacked his mother his grandmother and his mother's friend Samuel Shaw. Barbara had called Samuel over to their apartment to help her deal with her son. At the apartment, Barbara asked her friend to call her son's psychiatrist, Dr. Justin Green, and Samuel Shaw left to go to a nearby payphone. When he returned to the apartment moments later, he sat down and spoke with Anthony, who had seemed to calm down. Samuel then went to the bathroom, but when he returned he found Barbara Bakeland lying on the floor unconscious, with her son standing over her, with a peculiar grin on his face. When Samuel leant down to try and wake up Barbara, Anthony hit him on the head with a cane. When he came to, Samuel wrestled the young man to the ground, and as Barbara regained consciousness... She managed to call the police. It was decided Anthony Bakeland needed psychiatric help. Another psychiatric report from his stay at Metropolitan Hospital detailed some events from Anthony's childhood. Quote, During his infancy, he is said to have screamed a good deal. His mother states that his father refused to allow her to pick him up and insisted that he be kept on a strict schedule, even though he screamed bloody murder. Anthony Bakeland remained in hospital for around two months. As per his discharge report, his condition improved slightly, but his prognosis was poor. 
Staff at the hospital had told Barbara that her son needed to remain in the facility. Still, she refused to listen, demanded that he return home to her. Following Antony's release, the turbulent relationship between the mother and son continued. In January 1972, they got into another altercation after Antony overheard his mother raising her voice at one of her friends. He rushed into the living room, accused her of being a whore, and in turn she accused him of being a homo. Antony then grabbed a butcher's knife, and Barbara responded by screaming, I dare you. It was a chilling prelude to what would occur 11 months later. Just weeks before Anthony Bakeland stabbed his mother in the heart, his psychiatrist had called Barbara to warn her that she was in danger if she continued to live with her son. Barbara joked that he had been murdering her since he was born and did not heed the advice. Barbara and Anthony Bakeland lived in a penthouse apartment in the upmarket area of Cadogan Square, just a stone's throw from Buckingham Palace. The Bakelands had been described by their neighbours as wealthy globetrotters. At around 5pm on November 17, 1972, Anthony Bakeland was escorted to a police car and driven to Chelsea Police Station to be questioned on suspicion of his mother's murder. It was noted that there were multiple cuts to his hands. He was predominantly incoherent and made very little sense. Anthony started to speak about when he was a child. He had fallen off his pogo stick and said that things in his life had gone downhill since then. Anthony was asked when this happened, and he replied, When I was three, she's always trying to stop me. I see her in the air. She will not let me do anything. At the police station, Anthony Bakeland spoke with Dr Stuart Carney, the general practitioner at the Grove Health Centre. Anthony was asked if he had any physical injuries. He said no, before replying that he could not eat bread because although it went down, it did not, quote, strike through. He then said that when he pisses, it does not feel right. Anthony Bakelin claimed that these ailments began when his mother took her life in Paris around four years earlier. He said that she actually killed herself, but then she came back to life with the help of somebody else. Dr. Carney asked Anthony if he was having any treatment. Anthony said he was seeing a Dr. Cooper. When he was asked where, he replied, I see him in the air. Later, Anthony Bakeland would speak with Chief Inspector Kenneth Brett. While he initially denied he had stabbed his mother, Anthony later made a confession. When Chief Inspector Brett asked Anthony how his mother received the stab wounds, Anthony replied, I stabbed her. He told the detective that he used the big knife. Inspector Brett asked if Anthony's mother spoke to him at all during the assault. He replied that she told him, I am dead. Anthony's signed confession read, I stabbed her. I hadn't been planning this, but I think she was. I think she has been making me angry so that I would kill her. She has been stopping me doing what I want and she has been getting me through the radio, and I can only switch it off if I really concentrate. She has been like this since she killed herself three or four years ago. She even tried to stop me when I tried to jump through a window to get some cigarettes. She was there in the air. How long she was in the air? She said that she was death, 
I painted that picture. It was called The End of Everything. I think maybe she won't come back this time like she did before. That makes me happy. By the following morning, newspapers throughout the United Kingdom as well as across the Atlantic had picked up on the grisly killing. One sensational headline read, Mum is slain, nab yank son. From behind bars, Anthony Bakeland wrote a letter to his maternal grandmother, Nina Daly, which read in part, I can't remember exactly what started the fight, but it began in her bedroom. Then she went into the dining room where the maid was ironing and began to write something on a piece of paper. I can't remember what it was she wrote, but it infuriated me, and I tore it out of her hand and tore it up. Then she ran into the bedroom where I hit her. Then she ran into the kitchen. I ran after her and stabbed her with the kitchen knife that was lying on the table. As I ran to call the ambulance, I saw the maid just leaving the flat. After being charged with murder on November 20th, Anthony Bakeland was remanded into custody at Brixton Prison. The killing of Barbara Bakeland and subsequent arrest of her son sent shockwaves throughout the socialite crowd, at least those who knew the family by reputation. Those who knew them more personally could sense that something within the family was profoundly wrong and Anthony Bakeland had been a simmering pot of emotion and untreated mental illness, waiting to bubble over for quite some time. While in Brixton Prison, the courts ordered that a psychiatric report be conducted on his mental state. The psychiatrist found that Anthony was extremely disturbed, and when he was asked to write an account of the attack, Anthony wrote and drew on a number of pages comprising what was described by the psychiatrist as, quote, frankly psychotic content. The psychiatrist reviewed depositions and reports from five other psychiatrists who had examined Anthony Bakeland throughout various periods of his life. The doctor wrote, The history based on these reports is that Bakeland is an American subject an only child brought up with his parents in New York till about 11. His father is a brilliant, wealthy man who has never actually done any productive work, though he made one expedition to South America and wrote an article about it. The psychiatrist described Anthony's mother, Barbara, who had been stabbed to death, as a, quote, hysterical, narcissistic and impulsive woman, quite incapable of giving a child the minimum of maternal security. While in custody at Brixton Prison, Anthony Bakeland was placed on a treatment plan. The psychiatrist wrote that this helped tremendously. After a while, Anthony began to write to friends and family that he felt much more like himself. In a letter to family friend Anne Hare composed during January 1973, he wrote, For a while I didn't know whether I was coming or going, but now I am feeling a lot better and people are taking good care of me. In time, Anthony Bakeland realised that his mother was dead and that he had been the one to end her life. He confided in his loved ones that he found himself dreaming of her quite often, adding that when she came to him in his dreams, she told him that she was not angry with him for what he had done. In anticipation of his impending trial, the court-appointed psychiatrist wrote that Anthony Bakeland required, quote, further medical treatment, but the prognosis for his leading an ineffectual but socially acceptable life under medical supervision is probably better than for some time. 
this treatment could well be provided in the USA. There appear to be two possibilities. To ask the court to make a deportation order and give a short sentence of imprisonment. He is not really medically unsuitable for imprisonment, but I think it would be better to make a Section 65 hospital order to Broadmoor Special Hospital. He would very soon be ready for discharge, and his transfer to medical care in the USA could be arranged fairly simply. In either case, he would be likely to spend about a year in England, and better in Broadmoor than prison. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours, and the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. During the first week of June 1973, Anthony Bakeland stood trial for the murder of his mother Barbara. The trial held at the Old Bailey was short, at only two days. Anthony Bakeland was represented by John Mortimer, a playwright, novelist and lawyer, who told the courtroom that his client was gentle and calm. Defence barrister Mortimer wanted his client to be found not guilty and be sent to the United States where he could receive specialist mental health treatment. The accused's behaviour during the trial was said to be very strange. At one point he randomly shouted, I would rather have buggered a prosecutor than killed a peacock in paradise. Anthony Bakeland pleaded not guilty to murder on the grounds of diminished responsibility, but during the trial he would admit to manslaughter. The plea was accepted, 
and the judge told Anthony that he was pleased that the defendant was making progress since his incarceration. Mr Justice Swanwick said, As you now must realise, this is a tragic case. From what I have heard, I am glad to hear that your mental state is responding to treatment, but I am quite satisfied that further treatment is necessary. The prosecutor, John Matthew, was also satisfied with the plea put forward by the defendant, stating that he didn't doubt that Anthony Bakeland had been suffering from a mental abnormality that diminished his responsibility. As evidence of this, Matthew highlighted the fact that the defendant called an ambulance after the killing, telling the operator that his mother had been dead for six years. The prosecutor stated, From that moment, one might almost say that he was totally irrational. Anthony Bakeland was ordered to be held at Broadmoor Hospital for a, quote, period unlimited in point of time. Broadmoor Hospital was established in 1863 as Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. The high-security hospital provides specialist care for mentally ill people, including persons who have been convicted of violent crimes. It was built within the picturesque countryside of Crowthorne in Berkshire to a design by Sir Joshua Jepp, who was an officer for the Corps of Royal Engineers. It was set among 53 acres and was England's first criminal lunatic asylum. Broadmoor Hospital opened its doors after the Criminal Lunatics Act of 1860 passed, also known as the Broadmoor Act. To begin with, there were 95 female patients, and the following year a block for male patients would open. Patients were given the best treatments that were available at the time, but over the years this has changed tremendously as the understanding of mental illness advanced and the perception of mental illness gradually changed. At Broadmoor Hospital, staff have an extended period of assessment to determine each patient's needs. Then each is given a specific treatment plan, which includes medication as well as therapy. Depending on the nature and severity of their mental illness, some individuals are treated in intensive care or moved for assessment to assertive rehabilitation wards. The purpose of Broadmoor Hospital is not only to protect the public but also treat the patient so they are well enough to move elsewhere, whether that be a different psychiatric hospital, a prison, or back into society. It is a popular misconception that Broadmoor Hospital is exclusively for those people who are irreparably damaged. A further misconception is that mental illness correlates with violent tendencies. The fact is that people suffering from schizophrenia are over ten times more likely to be victimised than they are to offend. Anthony Bakeland pulled up outside Broadmoor Hospital in a prison van on June 8, 1973. At the time, there were around 750 other patients sectioned there. Over a quarter of those had committed murder or attempted murder. Anthony was accompanied to a special admissions ward so that his psychiatric condition could be assessed. He spent the first two months there before being transferred to Cornwall House, another section within the grounds of Broadmoor Hospital. Here Anthony stayed in a dormitory that he shared with around 60 other patients. Every single aspect of each day was supervised, from the moment he woke up to the moment he went to sleep. Anthony Bakeland's doctor, Dr Thomas Maguire, said that when he arrived at Broadmoor Hospital, Anthony was severely ill, 
so much so that the patient even needed assistance dressing himself each morning and going to the bathroom. Anthony frequently spoke about his mother, and Dr. Maguire believed that Anthony expressed genuine remorse over what he had done. A treatment plan was put in place, which included medication four times a day as well as strong tranquilizers. After a while, Anthony was allowed to pick several occupational therapies, some of which included radio making, metal work, carpentry and pottery. Patients at Broadmoor are permitted to play various sports, such as tennis and football, but Anthony Bakeland much preferred spending his time reading and working in the handicraft shop. He enjoyed working there because it offered him the freedom to paint. Anthony was confined to Broadmoor under a Section 65 restriction order, which meant that every two years he would be entitled to a review to determine whether he could be released back into society. At his first review, he was still considered a threat, but he was granted permission to be moved to Gloucester House, where patients were given more privileges. However, he was soon moved back to Cornwall House, when it became apparent that Anthony was not ready to be moved. Over time, his psychiatrist believed that he was improving mentally, and Anthony truly immersed himself in life at Broadmoor, eventually becoming part of the community group, the Broadmoor League of Friends. Dr. Maguire described the patient as a very kind individual, especially when it came to money. In the canteen, Anthony often spent his own money on the other patients, or simply gave his own food items and luxuries away if asked. This led to his money eventually needing to be placed under the protection of a court-appointed guardian. After three years at Broadmoor, Anthony Bakeland began to ponder whether he would ever be released. He spoke about wanting to become a teacher and told friends he would like to move to Mallorca, where he and his mother had lived together for a period of time. In the hospital, he had discovered Buddhism, and in a letter to a friend in 1976, he wrote, Before I was forever chasing after things, never satisfied for long and always let down in the end. Now that I have stopped grasping and clinging to the world and the ideas and concepts of the mind, I feel free and peaceful as never before. I have completely stopped forcing myself to do things because I just accept them now as they come to me. After five years, Anthony Bakeland was still considered severely mentally ill, but by 1979, his mental condition had seemingly improved. Anthony was taken off his medication and authorities determined that he was quite rational, quite reasonable. By late 1979, there were talks of release. For Anthony Bakeland to be released from Broadmoor Hospital, not only did Dr. Maguire need to be convinced that his patient was mentally well and not considered a threat to the public, but the Home Secretary had to hold the same opinion. They did. Anthony was released on July 21st, 1980, after serving six years. A number of his friends had petitioned to have him released, they believed that his issues had died along with his mother and felt he would be much happier at home, where he could receive one-on-one -on -one treatment by a psychiatrist. Following his release from Broadmoor, Anthony's 88-year-old maternal grandmother Nina Daly arranged for him to be released into her custody, much to the dismay of the majority of his family 
who believed that Anthony Bakeland was a dangerous individual and still mentally disturbed. Nina had stood by her grandson and had petitioned for him to be released. She visited Anthony frequently while he was in the hospital. Nina always made sure to bring him some food, often whatever fruit was in season, and steak, that she was allowed to cook in the kitchen for him, under the condition that she cleaned up afterwards. On one occasion when Nina came to visit, the visitor's file read, Maternal grandmother still seems less disturbed by her daughter's death than by the fact that her dear little Tony is in trouble. She seems just as mad as the rest of the family. Nina Daly firmly believed that the killing would never have occurred if Brooks Bakeland had not run off with Anthony's friend Sylvie. However, Brooks still wanted nothing to do with his son. He did not visit or write to Anthony at Broadmoor. At the time of Anthony's release, Brooks Bakeland was living in England, spending most of his time writing, albeit nothing that was ever published. He refused to mention Anthony by name, or even refer to him as his son. He simply called Anthony Barbara's child. When Brooks Bakeland was informed that his son was being released from Broadmoor Hospital, he replied, It's all just fun and games. After being rebuffed by his father, it was decided that Anthony Bakeland would move to New York City to be with his grandmother Nina. This was despite concerns from Dr. Maguire that Anthony would struggle to readjust in the United States, as he was essentially on his own. When he left Broadmoor, Anthony Bakeland was taking no medication, despite the fact he had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. At around 9am on July 27, 1980, Nina Daly's nurse, Lena Richards, arrived at Nina's apartment to begin carrying out her duties. She knocked at the front door, which was then flung open by a frightened Anthony Bakeland. Lena, quick, get the police, he shouted. I just stabbed grandmother. Police rushed to the apartment. Sergeant Joseph Chinier was one of the responding officers. When he entered the home located on East 74th Street, he was met by Anthony Bakeland who was coming out of his grandmother's bedroom. She won't die, he shouted at the officer. Anthony Bakeland was handcuffed as the first responders approached Nina's bedroom. Her screams echoed throughout the apartment officers found her lying against one of the walls, blood seeping through her nightgown from several wounds to her chest. Nina had been stabbed a total of eight times in her chest, arms and hand. She had a fractured collarbone, multiple fractured ribs, bruises and abrasions. However, despite the numerous injuries, her age and frailty, she was still clinging to life. She was semi-lucid as Nina explained to officers how her grandson had been playing music constantly since he moved in and was always on the phone. She also revealed that Anthony had created a memorial for his mother, including black candles and her ashes. Nina Daly was rushed to Lennox Hill Hospital. She told one police officer that she still loved her grandson and did not want anybody to know about what happened. Even as she struggled to breathe, she still wanted to protect Anthony. I loved him so much, it didn't hurt, Nina would later say. 
Anthony Bakeland had only been living with his grandmother for six days when he attacked her. Much like his earlier reasoning, Anthony Bakeland said he was motivated to attack his grandmother because she had been complaining about his behaviour. Down at the Manhattan Central booking station, before he was read his Miranda rights, he had confessed. I stabbed her. She kept nagging. I asked her to stop. I threw the phone at her, but she continued to nag. So I got the knife and stabbed her. Officers advised the suspect of his right to remain silent, the purpose being to preserve the admissibility of statements made. After he was read his rights, Anthony Bakeland confessed once more, telling a police officer, I stabbed her five times. I wanted her to die fast, but she wouldn't die. It was horrible. I hate when this happens. Many friends of the Bakeland family would come to Anthony's defence, stating that he was mentally unwell. However, his uncle, Dr. Frederick Bakeland, would reveal that he had warned doctors at Broadmoor Hospital against the release. He believed his nephew was still a danger to others. The doctor said, There were no proper follow-up plans from our point of view. He was dumped. I have known his grandmother for many years, and she is lying in a hospital bed unnecessarily. Dr. Frederick Bakeland was a professor of psychiatry at New York State University, and he blamed staff at Broadmoor for the attempted murder. He said he had written numerous letters to the hospital, warning doctors not to release his nephew, but Dr. Bakeland said that each letter was ignored. According to Anthony's uncle, doctors at Broadmoor should have seen the warning signs, including the bizarre words his nephew was writing in letters addressed to his family members. At the time, Dr. Bakeland did not elaborate any further, but said, if a man off the street had read those letters, he would have called them crazy. In one letter to a family friend that was later released, Anthony Bakeland had written, I don't understand why, but I feel a murderous hatred towards my fellow men. I feel that they are holding me down. This letter was authored during his first year at Broadmoor. There was also a letter Anthony sent years later to his father, in which he wrote that if he were ever released, he would come and kill Sylvie. Dr. Bakeland further revealed that staff at Broadmoor had confirmed that they would set up a halfway hospital in New York for Anthony Bakeland to live in so that he could get used to having his freedom. However, this was never arranged, so upon his release he went to live with his grandmother. Anthony Bakeland became the seventh person to commit a serious offence after being released from Broadmoor Hospital. A psychiatric examination was ordered to determine whether Anthony Bakeland was competent to stand trial for the attempted murder of his grandmother. During an interview with a psychiatrist, he had said, my grandmother helped me and brought me back to New York. I spent one week with her, but I had a difficult time. I was up all night and I couldn't eat. I felt I was being denied physical and eye contact with my grandmother. There is something in my eye that stops me from meeting other people face to face. I suppose if I meant having sex with my grandmother... I might have wanted to have sex with her. The end of that week I knew that I would be unhappy with her. I was calling the airlines to fly to Mallorca or England, but my grandmother, who is a very mysterious woman, tried to prevent me from making these phone calls. 
I kept hearing voices, including my grandmother talking in my head, but I couldn't hear her voice clearly because there was noise around and my voices kept bothering me. The voices are of those people I know and people I don't know. They sound like a machine. They talk back to me and it really bothers me a lot. The voices tell me that I'm a saviour, that I'm Satan, that I'm an angel, that I'm royalty. Sometimes they say that I'm a dirty little man or a bad woman or a dog. They also give me helpful messages. I hear them all the time. I also hear music. And the music lifts my soul. Speaking about the attack, Anthony went on to say, We were in my grandmother's bedroom, but she wouldn't shut up. She kept talking and talking and talking, and she wouldn't let me make the phone call. Then I threw the telephone across the room at her and she fell down. When she fell down, I felt very bad for her. I didn't want her to go to the hospital with broken bones and suffer more. So in order to help her, I rushed to the kitchen, took a little knife from the drawer, went back and stabbed her in the breast. I wanted to kill her so I could liberate her. Not because I was angry, just to liberate her from the mistake I had made and from the suffering that she was experiencing at the time and from the time I was 13 years of age. All this happened because I was denied physical contact with my grandmother and homosexual relations with anybody else. Anthony Bakeland explained that he knew his grandmother had survived because she could talk to him using a special power. A psychiatric report would describe how Antony was alert, cooperative and articulate, but suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. He pleaded not guilty to the attempted murder of his grandmother Nina Daly. March 20th, 1981, Anthony Bakeland appeared in a Manhattan courtroom for a hearing. His grandmother Nina was in attendance. When he entered the court, Anthony glanced towards her, waved and then blew her a kiss. It was the first time he had seen his grandmother since he attempted to kill her. Nina had tried to visit her grandson on Rikers Island, but was unable to because she used a wheelchair. The prison did not have the appropriate facilities. In the courtroom, Anthony Bakeland asked the judge if he could speak with his grandmother, but his request was denied. Anthony explained at the hearing that he came to understand that his grandmother had dropped the charges. However, the judge responded that this was not something a witness could decide. The accused replied, She wasn't the witness. She was the victim. After the hearing, Anthony Bakeland was returned to his cell on Rikers Island and scheduled to attend his trial on April 16th. He was upset. Anthony had anticipated being granted bail at the court hearing, but his medical files had not arrived from the United Kingdom, so his release was not granted. He requested to be locked in his cell. Around 30 minutes later at 4.40pm, An inmate making routine checks approached Anthony Bakeland's cell and called out his name. He did not respond. His feet could be seen poking out from underneath his blanket, and at first it looked as though he was asleep. When there was no response, the inmate opened the door and pulled off the blanket. Anthony Bakeland was lying in bed with a plastic bag over his head. 
the drawstrings were pulled tightly around his neck, and there was vomit on his shirt. A nurse attempted resuscitation, but to no avail. Anthony Bakeland was pronounced dead. So where are we now? Anthony Bakeland's passing was the final chapter in a family saga of money, mental illness and death that has been likened to a Greek tragedy. Some members of the Bakeland family saw it as an ironic ending considering the source of the family's wealth. Upon hearing the news of his only son's death, Anthony's father, Brooks Bakeland, surprisingly remarked, It was a beautiful ending. In plastic, too. Thank you for listening. And special thanks to our Patreon supporters. Make sure to check out our companion podcast series, They Walk Among America, covering tales of murder and mystery in the United States. Just search for They Walk Among America on your favourite podcast player. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.